And the Cyber Law Podcast is back for episode 486 after a long trek through the kind of snowless skiing uh, areas of North America from Utah to Vermont. Uh, actually, we got in a, a certain amount of skiing uh, both places, but we sure could use some more snow. I'm Stuart Baker, and we've got a great panel to clean up almost a month of cyber law news. Justin Sherman is here. He's a senior fellow at Duke University's uh, School of Policy. Jeffrey Atik, uh, who teaches law at Loyola Marymount in Southern California, right? Yep. Okay. And also uh, works at Lund University doing quantum law research. And finally, Paul Stephen, who is distinguished professor of law at the University of Virginia, the former counselor at the State Department and the Defense Department. Let's jump right into the uh, stories because we've got a lot to cover and this will probably be a longish episode. Why don't we start with AI because a fair amount uh, happened. Some of it, I thought by this point, which shouldn't be the least bit surprised, there's legal challenges or efforts to persuade uh, patent authorities that artificial intelligence engines themselves can be inventors. That has not done very well in the courts. Jeffrey, what's the latest? Well, the latest is an attempt in the United Kingdom to, again, establish the entitlement of an AI to claim I invented something that's that's patentable. And not surprising and consistent with the result pretty much everywhere else in the world, the Supreme Court of the UK came back and said, no, that's not right. An AI qua AI can't be an inventor as a matter of UK patent law. So that's not surprising. Similar attempts have been made. What it does, of course, make open as a practical matter is uh, AI qua tool. If a human says, I invented something with the assistance of AI, it seems pretty clear that that will be patentable under current doctrine in the UK. And probably the same result here in the uh, United States. A couple of quick observations. In the United States, the term inventor has both statutory and constitutional resonances. So uh, it w should a U.S. court have to look at this, they'd have to say, well, is an AI an inventor in the sense of the Patent Act? But moreover, is AI an inventor in the sense of Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, which refers to inventors? In the long run, what's the more interesting question is not whether AI can be an inventor, but rather whether AI changes the terrain as to what is obvious or not. And that's a profound question of patentability that uh, will, will, will need to be encountered. I, that sounds exactly right to me. This falls under the, all, all the things that have been said so far are sort of no-duh concepts. But the question of obviousness does strike me as the goalposts may well have been moved a long way. Now, Paul, what do you think about this? Am I scanting some reasonable legal argument that could have been made for AI as inventors? No, I, I thought it was, I, I was trying to figure out, you know, why they did it, and and it was I think for some performative or, you know, around the corner reason, but it couldn't have been on its face what they expected to get, and I agree with Jeff and you. I, I mean I think the real interesting issue and the game changer potentially is obviousness. Yeah, because if you can say, look, anybody could put this, could just ask this question of AI and get this answer, how could it not be obvious? That will be interesting because you'll have to be able to do. You'll have to be able to ask that question of an engine 
that was trained prior to the filing of the patent, right? If you if, if you can get that answer from the data that's already been uh, used to train the uh, uh, the model, seems to me that obviousness starts to look, you know, plausible. Okay, copyright law. Equally stupid arguments being made, as far as I can say. Jeff, the New York Times, which is, you know, in my world, a byword for stupid arguments, it has actually hired lawyers to argue that its uh, copyright is violated when AI trains on New York Times articles. And they they had some cute examples of why they thought that was true, but I was unpersuaded. Yeah, I I, I uh, agree with much of what you say. Maybe I have a slightly higher regard for the Times. In a way, it, it shocked me that they brought this case, that they would be associated with such a such a feeble legal argument as this. There's much in the background that suggests that this is more about trying to get a settlement from OpenAI, that they would end up paying the New York Times some amount of money for the courtesy of using the New York Times copyrighted material, even if that use doesn't constitute copyright infringement. And that's the real weakness of this uh, this argument. The timing of this, OpenAI got a deal with um, Springer. Axel Springer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, as soon as the deal was announced, New York Times sued which suggests that they've just thought their lawyers could could get them more money. Yeah. And, and so what's really interesting from this is not the legal argument, because there is no general copyright source right to control all uses. It, you know, it, there is a reproduction right, but that's not engaged here. It doesn't appear. What's interesting about this or amusing, but also re- revelatory of the of the technology is the disclosure of the prompt that the New York Times lawyers used in order to demonstrate that New York Times articles would be discoverable and replicated in the generative output. And the way they did it, they primed the pump so much to such an extreme. They basically took a, showed uh, a New York Times article to the AI, then gave a prompt that had the first two thirds of it and said, finish up the article. And of course, if you have that <laughs> constellation of the first, you know, first two thirds of the paragraphs uh, and you understand the mathematics involved, obviously it's going to predict that such a thing is followed by such a thing. Uh, you know, it's as if you started reciting the Gettysburg Address for score and kept going on and on and on, told the AI there's something out there called the Gettysburg Address. This is what its form is. Predict the final words. It's not going to be a shock that the... AI is going to come up with shall not perish from the earth. Well, I think that there may be an argument here that says what this test really shows is just how little originality there is in the last half of any New York Times article. <laughs> well, that that's a possibility uh, as well. And there's Sounds of Fair, another obscure copyright doctrine that, that covers that kind of uh, output uh, explanation as well. I should say, it's not that they are uniquely stupid. It's just that I grew up as an anti-authoritarian in a household where the ultimate authority figure was the New York Times editorial board. And I've never gotten over my adolescent rebellion against that. Okay, I agree with you that it was a cute uh, test. And maybe if somebody had done that who was not the New York Times and then published this, they might have a copyright infringement problem, right? They were deliberately trying to get OpenAI to produce infringing content. And maybe there's a there's a problem with the people who did that, but I'm not sure you can say that there's a problem with the engine. 
it fails to prove the the gist of their assertion. You can't just ask generative AI, tell me what's in the New York Times today. It can't tell yeah. you that answer. Okay. The Biden administration has now put out, actually the National Institute for Standards and Technology has put out an RFI asking a bunch of questions about how to uh, regulate or how to ensure AI safety. Uh, Paul, I have to say at this stage, those look like perfectly reasonable sets of questions to be asking. The answers may not be things that we like, but I didn't have a, an objection to the questions. Same here, Stuart. And I will say what I'm pleased with most is the dog that didn't bark. There's absolutely nothing in here about, uh, you know, the science fiction nightmare scenario, the uh, singularity and all that. And uh, I think that the administration realizes that a bad outcome that no one can imagine how we get to is not worth regulating for safety. That's a good insight. That's important. Yeah, I actually disagree on that. Um, so maybe I should have insisted that those questions be asked. Not that I am sure that we're doomed, but it is such a, first, it's, it's a very compelling scenario to my mind. And the outcome is so disastrous that if you just say, well, running the consequences times the probability, the probability doesn't have to be very high for us to take some steps to worry about this. And there ought to be ways to identify steps along the road to disaster that we could be watching for. And I frankly think the people who just insist that that cannot possibly be worth considering are usually the people who want to regulate. So I think that what they're really worried about is that this distracts from the regulation that they want to do, which is, you know, attacking the evil bias of tech bros, as opposed to thinking about a much more serious, but less probable risk. Yeah, well, I agree with you about my skepticism about some of the motivation for regulation. But I also, having lived through the Cheney Doctrine in the Bush administration, ah, yes, I've seen enough. the shortcomings. And, yes. you know, I, I mean, those low probability, high impact outcomes are worth considering, but considering includes rational analysis and what we don't yet have is a rational way of thinking about this problem. As soon as people develop it, I'm all on board. Let's think about it. But no one has yet come up with a serious progression of steps. And until yeah. they do, you know, all it is is let's kill the beast, put a stake through its heart. And I, I can't go along with that. I agree with that. But I, I would have thought that it would be possible to say, well, look, if our AI engines start lying to us or trying to manipulate us so that they can acquire more resources to accomplish a particular goal than we actually intended to give them. That's a, that's a very worrisome step. And uh, that, that, at that point, we should start asking, is there an off switch here? And it's not unreasonable to come up with probably a dozen things that are steps along the way to disaster that we should be watching for. Well, I would distinguish the line from manipulation. You know. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. All right. So I saw that this is the first legal AI story that we've covered, suggesting that Harvey.ai is now worth $715 million. It's, got, it's gotten a lot of funding to do legal AI. 
Legal AI does strike me as potentially quite valuable and with some pretty serious engineering and hallucination issues to address. Now, Paul, have you worked at all with the Harvey products? Not at all. I'm still a, you know, Westlaw is as sophisticated as a product as I can handle. But I mean, I, I'm willing to state my priors, which is, A, there's a lot of fat in the industry that can be carved out. You would know that better than I. Yes. Uh, B, things I do know something about, like FCPA investigations. It's easy for me to understand why AI could do a better job than bored, crazy contract lawyers in looking for the few needles in those big haystacks. And C, I can see uh, this kind of software increasing the value of lawyer skills because they have to supervise the AI operations. And if what we lose is soul-destroying, mind-numbing work in favor of more attractive supervisory work for lawyers, I say right on. Yeah. There'll be fewer lawyers, they'll be better, and they'll serve more people for certain kinds of tasks. So all of that is a promise for me. I will, we'll have to see whether that actually happens. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. I think there are going to be problems that are going to get solved by legal AI that will change the industry. Okay. I love this story because it was the first time that I have seen any indication that anybody in Congress has noticed that the EU is trying to screw American companies with its regulation. Now, Jeff, it's a very weird Reuters story, which says, you know, bipartisan attack on uh, EU targeting of U.S. tech firms. And then it doesn't tell us all of the congressmen who joined it or even give us the letter that it, it's covering. Yeah. It, so there's a certain tone deafness about the European decision to put on the hit list nothing but, for the large part, nothing but American companies. It certainly plays into this kind of reaction that AI regulation is just being instrumentalized to rebalance the, the trade in the uh, innovation sectors. And that's not helpful either for uh, transatlantic uh, cooperation. It's certainly not helpful for anyone who's inclined to be skeptical about European motives that might be on this podcast. You know, it's a warning shot ac across the bow from Congress, or at least these particular Congress, uh, Congress members, uh, that the U.S., is is taking notice, and this may be the first of many instances of the invocation of a kind of inchoate unfairness that's out there, not unlike, you know, Chinese currency manipulation. If the whole AI enterprise in Europe can be discredited from having a, a particular national animus uh, with regard to the United States, it, it certainly undercuts its legitimacy and its uh, its its integrity. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe the, the answer to this is politicians only embrace ideas that we're already sick of hearing because that's when they've been poll tested and they know who the beneficiaries of a particular position are and whether it will work to their advantage. And they're, de they're depending on lobbyists to tell them that. What this says to me is that Silicon Valley lobbyists have finally begun telling this story on Capitol Hill after years in which they didn't want to get caught saying mean things about Europe. So uh, it's all to the good. Also to the good is the fact that what's left of the tech sector in Europe is really dumping on the EU AI Act. 
Well, so so that that is interesting. That it's not just coming from the Americans that we're seeing some internal critique, uh, which is not surprising. That European industry is 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 pushing back at at this point. It's a little bit of fate accompli. There's you know there's there's not much movement I imagine that remains possible on the front of the uh, the terms of the AI Act it, itself. What's most notable is that France, qua France, is signaling its displeasure with the final form of the act. That's not saying that France isn't going to support its ultimate adoption, but you know, France has national champions still in this uh, in this court, and uh, and and clearly has a national interest that they be given adequate regulatory space to compete. So it, it's just interesting to see this kind of internal dissonance emerging within Europe. That it's not just the malcontents on this side of the Atlantic. Yeah. So that European regulators, I think, would say, well, you know, in the AI industry, there's a rush to produce a product, get to market, that you ignore flaws, you're going to end up with unintended consequences and misalignment of values, which it pretty much sums up how we got the EU AI Act. They committed every mistake that they think the AI industry is going to commit in drafting this thing. Uh, it's, it's incoherent and full of unintended consequences that you know, European industry is going to get to struggle with. And I think the U.S. industry is probably going to try to route around. All right. So we're still not done beating up AI. Uh, there's now a lawsuit out claiming that an AI or at least an algorithm, I, I wonder if this isn't a little bit uh, kind of tailored for the news release, that elderly extended care insureds had all of their post-operative care claims turned down. And then when they appealed them, 90% were approved. And so the, the algorithm that turned them down is being demonized as the source of the problem. Uh, Paul, did you look at the, uh, at the lawsuit? I couldn't get access to this suit, Stuart. From my own experience as an elderly person, I, I know that uh, insurance companies, it's not uncommon to see this very high rate turndown, which usually a phone call from your doctor overcomes. The reason it seems to me it's so easy to overcome is that it's not an algorithm unless right. you, by algorithm you mean a rule of thumb that a human is using. Right. But, but to think that this is a product of AI... Uh, I, I'd, I'd need to see some evidence. Yeah. I, I wish I could have gotten a hold of the complaint to see what they've got. But I'm real suspicious that they've got the goods on AI here. Yeah, because it, it, the, the lawsuit would be the same if it was AI or not. And so the AI is just a spice for the, for the lawsuit to make sure that it gets covered in places like this podcast. OK, so we're going to stop. The other kind of attack story on AI is another New York Times article, probably equally uh, misplaced, saying that ChatGPT is releasing private information, including emails uh, of New York Times uh, reporters. Justin, am I wrong to be skeptical of this story, too? I mean, it depends on uh, the skepticism, but I think yes and no, right? So, you know, they were able to, these researchers, at, uh, quote unquote, attack the model, right, and get it to spit back out information that was in the training data set. So to your point, you know, a lot of the data is scraped from the internet. It's already publicly available. So if that's something that's out there already, you know, is that that much of a difference to get it spit back out? Maybe not, but 
uh, as they talk about in the article, part of the challenge is that ChatGPT also uses third-party data. So they get access to information that's not public, that you know is is given to them through a variety of contracts and whatnot uh, to train the model. So if you could get that spit back out, then that's very concerning because you know whoever provides that might have their information then exposed, or even if you're not open AI and you're developing your own model, you know, Google's BART or what have you, right, you might have to deal with the same issue where you give it internal information to train, but that internal information can get spit back out with the right the right inputs. I think there was another paper that showed that if you asked ChatGPT to repeat the same word, I think if you said, can you repeat the word poem infinitely, it just would start spitting back out training data. So yeah, but what an inefficient way to try to get somebody's email address that uh, oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the email example certainly is trivial. Yeah. But I, th- I think, you know, the, the real question is, can you get it to spit back out non-public, commer- you know, commercially directly provided information that isn't that is useful in some way at scale? Yeah. Uh, and that's the problem. I don't see how you how you actually get information you want from doing this. What I didn't realize is apparently the biggest database of email is Enron emails. And those are almost certainly in the public domain because somebody in the U.S. government decided that they should be and should take responsibility for the fact that they are. But, you know, it's kind of hard to think of Enron emails as private information, although, and obviously there was always somebody some recipient who wasn't in Enron who might still have a privacy interest. This strikes me as a people desperate to find a privacy concern about AI, and this is another fail. Yeah, I mean, you know, there there are plenty of, of privacy issues, obviously. I mean, I think, like I said, for this, you know, it, it would be interesting to see if you can get back that non-public sensitive commercial data. If you can, then that's definitely a different conversation companies working with these LLM developers might be concerned in that case. But for right now, they were kind of spitting back out, like you said, Enron and other stuff that's already publicly available. All right. The SEC is is looking hard at AI because they're really AI skeptical and and maybe with some justification. And sort of like the, uh, the NIST set of questions about uh, what ought to be asked from a safety point of view, they're doing a sweep for information, talking to a bunch of their regulated entities. We don't know everything they're asking, uh, do we, Jeffrey? No, we don't know everything they're asking, but we know some some of the the highlights. So, portfolio management, which is you know under the uh, under the review of the SEC, is is has always been highlighted as a very promising area for artificial intelligence. The the old school quants who developed human algorithms. Uh, were thought uh, to be useful at one point in in our financial history, and uh, AI looks like it could do the job uh, even in a more compelling compelling way. What's What's interesting about the sweep is concerns on the one hand that firms that use AI disclose that they are using AI. On the other hand, there are concerns that firms that are using AI not exaggerate or tout their use of AI in an unrealistic way. So deception is working on both ends of that disclosure point or potential deception is working on both ends of that disclosure point. So how that disclosure about the use of AI ultimately is crafted is going to be a very 
interesting legal question, and then how firms are able to comply with the eventual rule on on that topic will we'll, we'll certainly engage a lot of attention by compliance officers. What's also interesting in that piece is Chairman Gensler's concern, and this is one of these nightmare scenario concerns, his concern about AI-induced contagion. If everybody is running, uh, all the portfolio managers are running AI from a common source, there may be suddenly unappreciated feedback loops that could potentially cause a crash. And that's, that's a real theoretical but credible concern that's that's being voiced. Not clear that a sweep is going to do much for resolving how much a threat that might be. Yeah, it really takes you back to AI explainability. If you're using an AI engine and you and the AI engine is doing a great job managing your portfolio, but it won't tell you, can't tell you why it's making the trades that it's making, there could be an enormous amount of overlap uh, where you think that you're hedged against a risk that uh, AI has just doubled down on. And so those kinds of things are going to be problems. Uh, and the SEC is right to worry about that, I think. All right. Uh, okay. Now let's start talking about uh, ways in which uh, big tech is getting beaten up around the country. Uh, first, Google lost its lawsuit with Fortnite over Play Store commissions and what it takes to, you know, whether whether a Play Store needs to be or can be mandated as a pre-install on uh, everybody's phones. What I thought was interesting about this is this is the case that Apple won in front of a judge and Google lost in front of a jury. I can't think of a world, maybe Paul, you, you can, where Apple's App Store is less anti-competitive than Google's. Yeah, I was struck by the same thing, and I am conceptually limited that I can't see why Google is a bigger antitrust threat than Apple. I can see that the arguments about, you know, the economies of scale that are achieved by firms like Apple and Google uh, benefit consumers and, and uh, have to be taken into account when looking at behavior that on his face seems a bit thuggish, that's an argument that a judge can understand better than a jury. And we may see nothing more than that. As I'm reading the press, it looks like a month later, Google is changing their practice and trying to write a check to Fortnite that would make all of this go away. And all that makes me feel a bit deja vu. This is kind of like Microsoft back in the 90s, you know, that there are some things we do that are marginal, and because they're marginal, they're not really costly to us to give them up. Yeah. And it's not a threat to the dynamics that allow them to achieve the economies of scale that make them both so rewarding uh, in the uh, monopoly rent set and, you know, potential to abuse as well. Yep. I agree with you on all that. What I, in fact, one of the things I think is interesting about this is that apparently this settlement with the hundreds of millions of dollars in potential payments to App Store users had been reached in September and then just wasn't announced or wasn't finalized until the verdict came in the Fortnite case. So these two things are quite closely related. And it suggests, as, as you said, that these are antitrust problems where you can buy off the people who are harmed. Yeah. 
And, and main, all right, what's our place by maintaining the business practices to yeah. that they're still valuable? And maybe that's right. I mean, I we, I don't want forty two different app stores and to have to go to those app stores to get what I need. And I also don't want to pay. 30% more for stuff I buy inside the app than outside the app, because that's just dumb. So uh, the idea that there should be some consequences, but maybe not fatal consequences for abusing your monopoly in the Play Store, maybe that's exactly the right outcome. No argument for me. Okay. How about the FTC? The FTC has jumped on a facial recognition case, they're, they're moving out front on facial recognition, and they're also doing stuff on children's privacy. Uh, I was inclined to think maybe the FTC had a point in trying to refresh and update and expand their privacy, their children's privacy rules. I was not at all persuaded by their attack on uh, Rite Aid for using recognition to try to identify shoplifters in, in the store. So one of my mentors once told me the only good time to kick people is when they're down. They're in us. Right aid is in bankruptcy if you're going to, you know, go after them. You know, there's always a problem with uh, any kind of, of tech tool that it's a shiny new toy that you don't actually test drive and find out whether it does what it's supposed to do. Uh, I think uh, potential shoplifter recognition is a real need in the industry. I'm uh, looking at District yeah. of Columbia, where you can no longer find an open CVS downtown. So, yeah, I, I think if Rite Aid were not flat on its back, maybe we'd see a bigger pushback on the children's stuff. You know, uh, it's not clear to me that what the FTC is doing is really undercutting a predatory uh, online presence in terms of monetizing children interests can get away with. You know, I mean, uh, we're all for protecting the children. Uh, we think parents ought to play a primary role, but we know parents often fall down on the job. And myself, I would like a better definition of predation rather than simply saying anything that could be potentially monetized, uh, we have to worry about. I would rather go after the bad actor rather than the source of information. But, you know, I don't have any fundamental objection to what the FTC is doing here. It hasn't yet gotten out of bounds the way it has in some of its other projects. Yeah. So on facial recognition stuff, I will say, I think they, they are out of bounds. They got Rite Aid down, not just because Rite Aid is broke, but because Rite Aid had not done a good job of using facial recognition. They didn't take account of the fact that if you get a low probability score on a match, it probably isn't the right match. And, and there, there's a great paragraph where they say, well, there was this blonde white female uh, who'd been shoplifting, and so we stopped a black woman. That does suggest you're not using your facial recognition technology properly. But when they, when the FTC says that there are more false positives with black or Asian faces than white faces, that's, uh, to my mind, in this context, I think that's wrong. I, uh, I think that the, the NIST uh, analysis suggests that when you're talking about one-to-many searches, which is what you're doing with something that's trying to identify if a, a person who walked in the, the store as a pot, potential shoplifter, that the technologies that are mostly in use don't have a false positive problem. 
the FTC doesn't give a site for their claim that this is a biased use of uh, face recognition. And I think if they did, they'd be proven wrong. And it's really scary that a federal agency would traffic in claims of racism without actually having the goods on the company that they're criticizing. So I do think that's pretty serious and suggests a kind of insouciant regulatory spirit that will regret in children's privacy as well. Just on a just on a factual note, though, that is an important distinction, I think, between the the one to many searches and other types of, of recognition, as you said, that often gets conflated. It was still the same higher false positive rate in the NIST study. So that that issue they tracked across one to many across the different kinds of, of tests that they ran. So I, I looked at the 2019 study and they said we don't have a false positive problem based on demographics with one to many searches. Now maybe I'm maybe I'm misreading that, but this is this certainly shows that the FTC can't just blow this off by saying, well everybody knows because everybody doesn't know and in many cases they're wrong. Do you you think the the, the NIST found a demographic difference in, in false positives between light skin and dark skin? I'm actually just reading it here and it's, they actually say both. <laughs> hot, so hot, we're both right. They say, uh, you know, it, false positives in one to many uh, are mostly higher. And then they say that they also found algorithms with similar rates. So it, it, it's actually both. So both, both points are right. Okay. Yeah, no, fair enough. Actually, it, it, it is no surprise that some of the algorithms are better than the others and that the better algorithms have fewer demographic yeah. problems. But again, for the FTC to ignore that, and they don't talk about which algorithm this is being used, is just irresponsible in, a, in such a toxic area as claims of algorithmic bias. Okay. Uh, anecdotes, Stuart. You know, yep. I, I come into Heathrow a lot. And uh, before uh, COVID, in the year or two before COVID, their facial recognition mechanism for clearing customs had an appalling failure rate for people with dark skin, to the point where you sort of pick the line based on how few people with dark skin were in it. Fair and, enough. Yeah. And I've been coming back to Heathrow a lot since COVID, uh, starting in 2022, and that problem no longer exists. So it's it's hard to avoid the conclusion that uh, the UK government initially had the uh, poorly trained facial recognition software, which is understandable, and they figured out they had a problem and they fixed it. Yep, it's it's, it's probably not even training. It's almost certainly lighting. You need better lighting to catch the subtleties of people's faces than you might if you were just dealing with one race and. Um, uh, that um, your experience in Heathrow is also the experience of the people who did studies for TSA and CBP in the U.S., uh, where they found some demographic differences in their first generation of technology. And by the second, those differences were vastly reduced or eliminated. This is This is a case where the the press wants to keep writing the story, even though the facts have changed. Okay, let's see. I think we are now to the point of talking a little bit about how Silicon Valley gets to regulate government. Apple has said uh, we're not going to give data about push notifications to government agencies 
unless they give us a court order, maybe a warrant, maybe a, a special order. A, and Google has said in what I think is a, a, a travesty, they're, they're going to make it impossible for them to do geofence warrants. Paul, these are both things where essentially private industry is saying, we think that we can tell you what you need to produce by way of a, a, a document to get our, our data. And that's challengeable in Apple's case. In Google's case, they can just say, we've made it impossible for us to get that data, and therefore you can't come to us and ask for it. Yeah, uh, it represents the uh, separation between public and private spheres that we have and China does not in important areas. I, I still kind of believe that even the Google problem, NSA has tricks up its sleeve that can get around that. But average law enforcement is not going to have access to those technologies. And so a very useful tool for crime solving, as well as something that can be terribly abused for improper surveillance, is just gone away rather than, you know, my favorite solution, which is put the uh, information in a box and make the box hard to get into, but don't not collect the information. But I think this is a fragile relationship. The big tech companies are fundamentally independent with the government. They know if they push it too far that the government will push back. And so I would say watch this space. The geolocation thing, Google was the box. Google actually imposed a bunch of restrictions that are nowhere in law about how to handle geofencing in which you kind of had to, Google would say, give me a box We'll tell you how many people are active in that box and we'll give them a, an anonymous identifier and we'll give you some more information about each of those folks. And then we will ask you to narrow it down and give us a warrant for a limited number of those. And, and only then will you find out anything that would be private or useful. And in many cases, that's the only way you're going to be able to crack these crimes and to say, yeah, never mind. Uh, we're just going to let a bunch of murders and rapes and other crimes go because we, Google, don't feel like having that information or taking responsibility for enforcing the, the warrants is really a failure of social responsibility on Google's part. So to me, it's an FCC problem. You know, that, that one of the conditions of your license ought to be that you have a store box that tightly locks somewhere. Yeah. And and I, I think it's not impossible to envision that day. Well, now that the FCC has said that they can regulate for equity and they can regulate all of Silicon Valley for equity, you can just say, well, it turns out that crime is really inequitable uh, on a racial basis. And uh, the victims of crime are disproportionately members of minorities. And therefore, as a matter of equity, we're going to require you to gather this information. Yeah, well, I didn't say the current FCC is going to do with that. I just, uh, uh, by the way, there will, there will be others. Yeah, that's true. Okay. And finally, uh, Apple is busily regulating the Indian government and getting slapped upside the head for it. Paul, uh, I thought this was a great story because it doesn't fit with the usual expectations that we have. And uh, I, I learned a lot from, from the behavior of both parties in this, this story. Yeah, it's a wonderful role reversal. And I think it's it's really smart 
on Apple's part. Uh, you know, the, it's not doing this that got Google ultimately forced out of China because they were so collaborative with, felt they had to be to protect their own people. And India is at least trying to protect their own people and a very important business opportunity, but still trying to do the right thing. The forces on both sides are very powerful. You know, Essentially, good- what we should say, tell people what's going on here. Apple sent out warnings to a bunch of iPhone users saying, a government is trying to hack your account. And it was pretty clear in the context, these were all people who had in various ways pissed off the BJP, the, the ruling party in India, that this was a warning that they were being hacked by the Indian government. And the Indian government reacted very badly to being outed in that fashion. Yeah, so I think that uh, exactly. I mean, this is all Pegasus software, Pegasus software. So it's hard not to think that uh, there's a govern- government connection, given that the owner of Pegasus uh, asserts, at least, that it only deals with responsible government actors. As long as India counts as a responsible government actor, there's going to be some pretty bad things, because it's a wonderfully democratic but extremely authoritarian and paranoid government. And uh, so bad things should happen. They seem to be happening. If I were, as I am, an Apple phone owner, I would want, almost as a matter of a duty, to be notified if Apple has detected a uh, Pegasus hack. Um, yeah. Well, they're eager to do that. Their distaste for NSO is is profound. But in so doing, they have stepped on the toes of the BJP and the Indian government. And the Indian government said, uh, you know, you better be sure about this because we're going to come down on you like a ton of bricks. And there's at least some indication that in India, Apple's corporate communications people started saying to journalists, well, we could be wrong now. This could be wrong. we're We're not saying for sure as a way of trying to take the sting out of the story. And BJP people gave them scripts ah, to say exactly that. So yeah. again, watch that space. Yeah. I think what's interesting here is that this is yet another democratic government where misuse of surveillance tools is focused largely on surveilling the opposition party in a democracy. There were four or five of them, scandals like that in the EU. Also Greece. Yes, Greece. And so it tells us that that is one of the first things people do when they're going to misuse misuse surveillance. Free advertisement to hear one of the things that I've been pushing for six months or a year is that when we do 702 reform in the United States to, to try to deal with the objections to renewing 702, which is an absolutely essential program, but which has raised questions about whether there's misuse of intelligence capabilities. I don't think 702 is being misused, but it would make a lot of sense to have better protection against political misuse of our surveillance, our international intelligence capabilities, because they were misused in the, the in 2016 uh, when people started in government started getting nervous about Trump. And so what this story tells us is that the temptation to spy on the opposition party is always present, and it makes sense to look for ways to make that less easy to pull off. As someone who can remember the Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon administrations, we certainly know how the extant high-tech surveillance technology was used against uh, respectable political opponents. Uh, 
Yep. It, 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 you know, I, I'm totally with you, Stuart. The uh, whole thrust of my scholarship is toward combining collection technology with stronger ways of controlling who gets access to the intake. Yep, I'm completely there. And that is sort of what we've been doing for the last 50 years. But during that 50 years, we also had a holiday from, from history on political surveillance, and that holiday is over. All right. And uh, I don't know what to make of this. There's a Indian disinformation. It's called Disinfo Lab. And it turns out that it purports to be finding disinformation about India, but actually also traffics in it kind of uh, uh, cute. It's it's a an effort to influence mainly U.S. public opinion in ways that India and its current ruling party would like to see. And the Washington Post goes into great detail about this. I'm not sure what more there is to say about that other than, uh, you know, there, there are no countries that we can really be completely comfortable are not running influence operations on the U.S. government with the possible exception of the Five Eyes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, there certainly is a rich tradition of uh, the United States running operations like this against its adversaries as well. Uh, I think you're really teeing up the uh, European uh, DSA investigation because I think it's fundamentally the same problem. I mean, how do you tell the difference between disinformation and saying truth to power? Yeah. So this is the, the, the investigation of Twitter slash X. They say it's now in the wake of the uh, Israel-Hamas war, but it was overdetermined. They were for sure going after Elon Musk on content moderation because they built a whole bunch of standards for content moderation that big platforms are supposed to uh, adhere to. My sense on this is this is like GDPR. Any company could be investigated and found in violation of it because the standards are so vague and so sweeping if you choose to interpret it that way. So I'm assuming this is going to be an investigation in which they say that Elon Musk has violated the Digital Services Act. Uh, is, that, uh, is that the likely outcome here? Uh, when have they had an investigation and not found wrongdoing? I yeah. mean, the courts have been decent in the EU in sitting on the commission when it does this stuff. The commission so far seems to feel that there's, uh, you know, going after big tech in the United States is a mission that will be rewarded and rule law be damned. Yeah. For the congressman who signed the letter objecting to regulation of AI that uh, discourages American companies, they should be looking closely at this because this is this is Europe saying we get to tell you what Americans can say and read. And there's no First Amendment problem there because we're not subject to the First Amendment. Uh, we're just private actors like everybody else. And we'll tell your private actors what to do. And then they'll raise the First Amendment objection that they can't be told not to do it. So it's a it's a real catch-22 for us. I, Jeff, I don't know if you see it the same way. Well, I just want to comment on the selectivity here, that, that X is the first target of a DSA investigation may give some comfort to to other uh, U.S. companies. Uh, after all, Elon Musk has been somewhat notorious in his disdain for investing in content moderation and the True enough. Uh, uh, alleged dismantlement of co meaningful content content moderation at Twitter may be a distinguishing factor that limits uh, 
limits it. But I, that said, the potential scope of, uh, of further investigations is clearly there. Yeah. What Europe is, is doing and what Europe consistently does is it defines the reasonable range of respectable opinion to pretty much stop where the, the right wing of the Democratic Party stops and to exclude most of Republican thought from uh, reasonable civilized uh, views. And when they do that, half of the, the U.S. says, well, that sounds reasonable to me. And so that helps them avoid criticism from American sources when they engage in this kind of behavior. But I do think it's, it's really dangerous. All right, let me ask about this other thing. This is a, a case that Musk lost that I thought he should have, but the ideological valence of the case is a little unusual. California has a content moderation law that says you have to disclose a lot of information about your content moderation. The only other two such laws are being challenged by net choice in the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, they were kind of partially upheld by uh, the Fifth Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit. Uh, the, these are the Texas and Florida laws. Musk said, hey, that net choice argument, that, that works for me, too, in, in an attacking the California law. And he lost. But that strikes me as potentially raising a real question whether whether there is a way in which net choice wins its arguments against the Texas and Florida laws, at least across the board. This was only about whether you can mandate transparency in content moderation, but I still thought it was a surprising twist to have California saying we ought to be able to regulate this stuff and then to have a uh, relatively liberal Ninth Circuit court say, yeah, you, you can't. Yeah, you know, I, I'm going to harken back to what I said when we discussed the net choice cases. My First Amendment work goes back to those uh, halcyon old days when people thought the line was between content neutrality and viewpoint neutrality on the one hand and, and that forums otherwise could pick and choose. Uh, given, uh, I think, the California and Texas laws more or less, maybe there's some problematic aspects of it, but they more or less hold to that ideal so I, I am not excited about the First Amendment issues in those cases or in Musk's claim. I am very interested in the negative commerce clause issues. And, uh, you know, I think that's the problem. The problem that California is doing one thing and Texas and Florida is doing exactly the opposite with respect to an industry that is pretty a-territorial. That, to me, is a problem. Yes, I understand that argument. But all of these industries are regulated in 150 countries. And if we start saying, well, I don't know, you know, you shouldn't regulate if it's going to be different from the regulations in some other country, isn't that, I mean, I realize there's, there, there isn't the same negative, there isn't a, uh, there is an international commerce clause, uh, uh, but we don't usually read it as giving foreign governments a veto over what our law is. But the argument that, oh, this is terrible, we can't possibly live with multiple forms of regulation because we're so big, that argument lacks persuasiveness in a global industry. So we may be looking at a world that incentivizes higher quality VPNs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep. 
So there's a little bit of apples and oranges uh, that's that's going on here, distinguishing the California case from the uh, from the Texas and Florida cases. Uh, here, the First Amendment argument is a forced speech argument. You know, uh, California says you've got to tell us what you're doing with respect to content moderation. You know, that that's content neutral from a First Amendment analysis. And uh, Musk is coming back with the somewhat daring argument that you can't force me to respond. And, you know, that could implicate SEC disclosure, filing tax forms. Uh, it's a darling of the uh, of uh, certain quarters uh, in the U.S. political sphere. But for speech arguments, I don't think are going to go anywhere. And, and but, but it is also the, the net choice argument, which represents, uh, you know, the the left liberal uh, consensus of Silicon Valley. So it's not just a right wing argument. It's no it's no better because uh, it, it has that provenance. But I, I wouldn't say that uh, Musk is the only one who's making it. I think net choice is making that argument in the Supreme Court. I just want to indicate my total alliance with Jeff here. I think four speech arguments as a matter of First Amendment law are silly. And, and therefore, I think the First Amendment arguments in both of these sets of cases are problematic. And, and which is why I'd like to see us wrestle with, you know, the Commerce Clause. And maybe there's a tech solution to that. That, to me, has more constitutional purchase than the First Amendment. I, it's off topic, and I won't spend too much time on it, but I wonder if we aren't going to see a kind of preference cascade collapse of First Amendment enthusiasm. It'll come last to the Supreme Court because those guys bought into it, maybe more than, than most, and the judiciary has bought into it. But now that people on the left don't care about it, it seems to me that the First Amendment is going to lose a lot of its luster and the doctrine is going to evolve in directions that are less enthusiastic about finding free speech problems with uh, various legislation. You can see that in some theorists. Uh, Dean Post of the Yale Law School, a person I admire a great deal, has been rethinking First Amendment on exactly those grounds. I expect to see both the left and the right rethink that. I'd like, because I'm a reactionary, I'd like to see us just return to the Warren Court's conception of the First Amendment. I thought that was pretty nifty. Yeah, it is true that the older you get, like the easier it is to find a golden age somewhere back there. <laughs> All right, we've left this for last, but it's pretty serious. Justin, a lot of discussion in the last month about our relationship with China in the news. And I would say a lot of it is around cyber espionage, cyber insecurity, and the effort to build a supply chain that would make us less at risk of espionage and disruption. Do you want to run through some of the stories? I thought the, uh, the, the story about Chinese intrusions into port and utility uh, networks was at first glance, kind of no big deal. We've been talking about Chinese intrusions for 15 years or more. But the closer you look at this, the more it looks as though that was motivated by possible tactics and strategies that we haven't seen China adopt before. Yeah, I mean, we there's about 100 stories here, which I guess is par for the course <laughs> with uh, China news these days, if, if you go over a month. Yeah, I mean, as you said, so to some extent, this is exactly what's been talked about uh, for a number of years. And what we're, you know, the thing we're referencing is in the Washington Post. But 
So, so some similarities, right? The People's Liberation Army is engaged in targeting. They're looking at U.S. systems. They're preparing for possible kinetic conflict. But as you said, Stuart, when you zoom in a little bit, a lot of this is utility focused, at least what was talked about in this article. So a water utility in Hawaii, a port along the West Coast. These were not named, of course, in the piece. Uh, an oil and gas pipeline, right? A power grid operator in Texas. And that's especially concerning, right? If we think about how our grids are set up in perhaps not the most secure and resilient fashion. But I think it speaks to, you know, A, as you said, it's a continuation of what's been happening. There's constant targeting of U.S. systems. There are tons of government hackers and cyber criminals and others in China doing this kind of stuff. But this in particular, based on what some of the folks who talked to the Post said, is really around concerns uh, about Taiwan and, uh, you know, Beijing sort of potentially preparing for what they might do if there is an invasion of Taiwan. And, you know, do we want to have measures in place to take out U.S. systems? So it's an interesting question. I just want to add, because we went through this a little bit two years ago when the Russia-Ukraine war started. right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, concern about, and this is, uh, I, I know uh, Paul has done a lot of work in this area. You know, this is something I've also worked on the commercial side, right? And when that happened, there was a lot of concern about what might Russia do, particularly to the financial and energy sectors in the U.S., but we ended up not seeing much, right? There was sort of the standard espionage, but no significant disruption operations, no major ransomware. They've sort of focused all of their efforts on, on Ukraine. So, you know, I don't know if others have thoughts, but I think that's one of the key questions here is, okay, we see this targeting, you know, hopefully the U.S. can keep investing in in tracking these threat groups, but what is the actual risk that if Beijing does invade Taiwan, they're going to focus their cyber activities on Taiwan and the surrounding area versus are they also going to be taking aim at U.S. systems if we engage in sanctions or some sort of countermeasure? Yeah, so. I mean, I, I think the answer is that's certainly an option. We need to make it an option that's very unattractive. We managed to make it an unattractive option for the Russians, uh, which is impressive. But we should really think hard about how will we deter that kind of behavior, which means, unfortunately, that we need to do the same thing the Chinese are doing. We need to be in their critical industries systems, not just with an eye to gathering intelligence, but so that if we need to, we can take down their uh, their systems in a tit-for-tat approach to counter-hacking by uh, us and China. Yeah, you need that leverage. Okay. I thought, you know, the Washington has announced and the Commerce Department said it's going to do a semiconductor supply chain review as they're discovering it's harder and harder to actually come up with a clean supply chain. That strikes me as both obvious and a good thing to do. But it's it, it, this just shows that uh, industrial policy in this area is going to be really hard. Yeah, I mean, I think even we were just talking about cybersecurity, you can look to so many other areas for analogies, right? Like you said, there is sometimes this discussion of supply chain protection as if you can achieve some perfect state, right? You can you can cut out a particular supplier entirely or circumvent an entire geography entirely. Uh, and sometimes that's the case, but mitigation is probably a better way of thinking about it. And here, commerce is continuing to kind of do things around 
this issue. Obviously, there's been a lot of other things going on, outbound investment review announcements and things around third countries, particularly South Korea and others and where they're sourcing from. So yeah, well, you know, it's going to continue to unfold. We'll see what happens, but certainly becoming more and more pressing, I think, in the at least to the administration and probably to whoever is in office next as well, as we said, as this, you know, risk of possible conflict over Taiwan keeps looming. Yeah. So while we're on China, that something I that I am not familiar with, uh, the Network Contagion Research Institute produced one of the more interesting reports about TikTok. You know, a lot of the uh, objection to TikTok has come from kids are getting the new their news from TikTok and it's being manipulated by TikTok to conform to Chinese Communist Party priorities. And this is a study that purports to actually try to identify whether that's happening. And Justin, it looked to me as though it was, you know, there there was real data here. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting study. There's been a lot, you know, done around this. There have been some, I can name specific ones if you want. There have been ones that I think that have been terribly done. And there are ones that are, are uh, done with more evidence and empiricism. I think, as you said here, this study at least tries to do that. They looked at basically, you know, what kinds of content are getting promoted on TikTok using data and then seeing how that aligns with CCP, Chinese Communist Party objectives and interests and values. So and then and then comparing it basically to what Instagram. Uh, right. Uh, right. What, what is a U.S. rival yeah. do? And, you know, I think it's a really interesting question. Right. And they did and they did find some alignment. They found more than you had between Instagram and Chinese government views. So. Yeah, you know, I think it's an interesting study. I think it continues to point to the interesting thing with TikTok, which is that, you know, there probably is an overall content skewing towards Chinese government preferences, and that's concerning. And there are also other ways the platform could be exploited. Is it a total 100% tool of the state run out of the MSS? Probably not, right? And people sort of sitting there typing articles all day. But but I think what it did show is that that skewing and that bent towards Chinese government interests, which of course air towards taking things down and silencing criticism versus a more speech permissive. So, Paul, let's suppose that the, the government decides that this is the reason they're mad about TikTok and, and not personal data. Is there a First Amendment objection to saying we just don't want to have a company that is beholden to the Chinese government influencing in this very effective way, the information that Americans receive? So Kleindies versus Mandel, I think, is a site suggesting that the First Amendment is fairly disinterested in the supply of foreign official or idiosyncratic points of view into the U.S. market, injecting into the U.S. information market from abroad. Uh, on the other hand, we have the uh, First Amendment carve-out in the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, so Congress thought there was something there. I am skeptical about why we should worry so much about bets on supply-side issues, that's to say supplying information uh, just speaking as an educator, I think it's really hard to shape young minds. And I'm grading my exams right now, so I'm very sensitive to that. <laughs> and, and, and so that would not be my first concern. You know, it has salience. Plenty of people like, the, you know, like they pointed 
to the Communist Party back in the 50s, you know, the, the corrosion of, the, of young minds. Uh, I'm, I just think it's really hard to corrode young minds as well as to improve them. Well, it's certainly hard to improve them. Uh, bearing in mind how much of what we learned when we were 17, we still believe. You know, you have to you have to worry that, uh, in fact, corroded or not, this is what we're going to get. This is this is what people will think is obvious. Whatever they learned when they were 17, uh, like me in the uh, New York Times editorial board. Yeah, but like you in the New York Times, what you learned was not what authority figures were trying to tell you. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> okay, let's do a few quick ones. This one, I, I should spend a lot of time on this, Justin, uh, because this is potentially the most serious story we have heard in the last month which is this very sophisticated iPhone attack that was revealed by Kaspersky that used a whole bunch of zero days and was enormously effective. And the question that I think Kaspersky raised in a very delicate way, but which really needs to be looked at pretty hard, is did Apple participate in enabling this attack? And a lot of the evidence kind of points in that direction. Yeah, I mean, of that, I don't know. You know, like you said, it's an, it's first of all really concerning, and folks can go read the post from Kaspersky about it. I will also spare commentary on Kaspersky because I have many thoughts on, on that company and their sort of Russian government uh, entanglements. They're not anybody whose word we would take for this, but when they right. show their receipts, they did a good job in demonstrating what they thought had happened. No, I mean, they do, they, they, which is part of why they're concerning to me is they do very good threat research. Uh, and so anyway, but so go check out the post. But but essentially, like you said, it talks about a series of four different zero day exploits that were used against iPhone to create a zero click attack. So concerning first part, right, four zero days in one attack, that's quite a bit. So clearly we're talking about someone who's very invested in this kind of... Uh, it's really expensive. It's, actor, it's very expensive. Only right? a nation state could have done this. Right. Logistically intensive, and whether you paid for it or developed it yourself, it's expensive, or you contracted it to a researcher, it's expensive. And then the second piece, right? Zero click is, uh, and Pegasus came up earlier, right? Uh, kind of up there in terms of most concerning attacks. If you don't have to click on anything, then all this decade's worth of talk about cyber training and phishing education is not really useful because you actually are just using your phone as you would and now you're compromised. So yeah, I think it's very concerning. I do wish that I understand, like you said, kind of the there are multiple things in there. I think Kaspersky says kind of in a, a careful way. I do wish they were a little bit more blunt in terms of who they think this is and, and this kind of thing, but at the very least speaks to this as a, you know, continued continued problem with the zero click. Yeah. exploits. And clearly it's not just folks buying it from, from NSO group. It's folks, you know, like you said, likely here in Intel service building this in. So I'm willing to be more blunt about it. First, it, it, it is zero click. It's very bad, but it's not a current problem. Apple has, has patched all this. It can't be done now, uh, but it shows what can be done if you've got the determination. But on the question of did Apple know this was going on, here's what's what the exploits did, as I understand it. Uh, first, I, there was one exploit that 
had been patched and then was unpatched. Kind of wonder what was going on there, but maybe was unpatched at the request of somebody. Second, it exploits, you know, it's very hard to find a place where you can store information on a modern system because they don't allow you to write just randomly. And it turns out that the chips that are being used in the last five generations of Apple phones had hidden I.O. space that you could write to and use for your purposes that was not documented anywhere, but which was preserved through multiple generations. I don't know how you do that without the people who are actually writing the code having some awareness, unless uh, maybe you can do that, but uh, that strikes me as very difficult to pull off. And then finally, to actually get the final piece of this uh, compromise in place, you needed to produce a particular hash for your communication to that part of the chip. There was no way to know what that hash was unless somebody had told you the secret. And so when you're done with all that, I would say you end up one with a an attack that is also designed to to minimize the risk that it will be exploited by anybody but the person who wrote it. Now, to my mind, that kind of points in the direction of a Western agency that is afraid of the consequences of its exploits being spread around. It also could be that uh, the company said, well, we'll do this, but only if you have all of these controls in place. The fact of that doesn't tell you who did it, although it kind of points in the direction of some participation by a Western and probably an American agency. But this is very hard to do, to include a bunch of additional code in your exploit that you don't need except as a protection against misuse. But the more code you put in, the more likely you are to get caught by the company that is supposedly uh, guaranteeing security. So all of these things say to me, this is probably an American exploit. And boy, if it isn't, it's an even bigger scandal uh, because it is very hard for me to imagine that this could have been done without Apple understanding that it was happening. And again, that's a scandal by itself, I suspect, given what Apple has presented as its privacy policy. So all of these things, none of this is clear. The debate about this is probably just beginning. But I think if you wanted an issue that's going to resonate for months, I think this is one of them. And uh, maybe maybe it'll all just get buried. And, And if that's the case, it's probably because it's not in Apple's or the U.S. government's interest for it to get examined. But somebody in the U.S. government better be examining this if it isn't an American exploit, because then it's really trouble. Yeah, and I agree with that. And I think, like you said, if it's not, it still speaks to sophistication to exploit something that, quote unquote, no one knows is there. But to remind the important context, right, probably seven months ago now, Kaspersky came out and said the NSA in the U.S. worked, or the NSA in the U.S. and Apple worked to create a backdoor for the iPhone. Yep. And that's been used to target thousands of Russian phones, which, you know, as a simple statement is certainly a plausible hypothesis, but at the time was sort of met with, 
okay, Russian propaganda, mid-war, yep. can we trust yep. this? Who knows? But to your point, it's ha- it hasn't been, you know, they haven't said in this that they are alleging it's the NSA or that it's a U.S. agency or the U.K. or whatever, but it's interesting that this comes after that comment was previously made by Kaspersky. Right. And both the Chinese and the Russians are putting their money where their mouth is. They're, they're, they're banning the use of iPhones in at least significant parts of their government. So, yeah, I think that look to Russia with that. But in any case. Yeah. OK, um, the so, this is 702 intelligence program uh, was supposed to be renewed at the end of the year and wasn't because Congress extended the deadline to April 19 as part of the National Defense Authorization Act. So we're going to have the same debate just closer to the election. I actually think that probably that the fact that that extension occurred with relatively little pushback is a sign that the leverage of the left-right coalition that's trying to blow up uh, or at least cripple 702 with warrant requirements doesn't have the votes. But we'll see. Oh, this this is worth celebrating. At last, the reign of Mickey Mouse in copyright law is over. For really all of my adult life, whenever it looked as though any piece of the Disney empire was going to come out of copyright, Disney mobilized and got an extension, endless and useless extensions of copyright by a half a century or more. They couldn't do it this time, and therefore, for the first time in a long time, some things are going into the public domain as of January 1, including Steamboat Willie, who is the first Mickey Mouse cartoon. And uh, that's it's worth celebrating that Disney's headlock on uh, what Americans can say and not say is probably over. That's good news. And Paul, Madison Square Garden, this is less clearly good news. Madison Square Garden can keep banning attorneys. I'm a kind of a surprise that uh, that's where the courts came out. It's not a merits decision. It's simply no ground for a preliminary injunction. Okay. Uh, we need a better factual record. And you now you have to balance a landowner's rights against you know, other interests uh, in this case. Uh, I mean, I don't understand why enlightened New Yorkers don't just boycott the place, given how bad the Knicks are, but that's just me. Yeah. But but it's important to know it, it's a uh, only a ruling on a preliminary injunction. It's not a merits decision. Okay. Okay. And there was a story that said that the, the Chinese spy balloon was actually sending its data now that we've admitted that it was collecting data and sending it back to China through a U.S. internet provider. I thought that was an interesting story, and it raised the question for me is, shouldn't we be using 702 to identify the recipient of that data so that we can intercept uh, the data as it's transmitted? As a taxpayer, I hope we were doing that. Yeah, it was probably encrypted, you know, but we still should have collected it and we still should have stored it so that we can see what the Chinese are interested in collecting from us. Uh, the story of Venema is about collecting encrypted information and breaking it over time. Yep, that was good news. It was uh, pretty partial, and lots of people have found ways to make that harder. So I'm not sure we're ever going to get a bonanza out of that, but it's still a worthwhile use of um, our storage capability, I think. So... I wasn't sure how much to make of this. That I guess this is just a case that we're gonna that's gonna go to the Supreme Court. Whether the police 
can require uh, uh, suspects to provide their their phone passcodes. Uh, uh, that's a Fifth Amendment issue. The question is whether it's testimonial, I guess, uh, to provide the uh, the password. Yeah. Where is Orrin Kerr when you need him? You know, I mean, he would have uh, informed views on this. Uh, there's a circuit split. I think the court will take it. The, the Utah Supreme Court said that is a violation of the Constitution. I'm very soft on the Fifth Amendment. I'm never sure exactly what value we're getting from it. So I'm skeptical about this extension of the Fifth Amendment. And uh, yep. if we have the technology to get into the phones, we need to get into. It's getting it's, harder and harder. Um, yeah, more and more costly. Yeah. But when it really matters, we can do it. That's right. Well, uh, luckily, convenience trumps security most of the time. And so most people will allow their phone to unlock with their face or their finger. And if you just have good arrest protocols, you'll get into the phones that way. And the lawsuit over incognito, the, there was a, a lawsuit against Google claiming that it could still track users who were using incognito mode, which struck me as completely unsurprising. And I'd wonder why there was a lawsuit and why Google felt the need to settle it. Well, perhaps for PR reasons rather than, uh, yeah. I mean, they got money to burn. And uh, the more people understand why these things don't really work, the more people might look for alternatives. So better to make it go away. Okay. And finally, I'm going to ask Paul to take us out on Daphne Keller filed like everybody else, apparently, who uh, wants to, to be heard on content moderation filed a Supreme Court brief in the uh, various Texas and Florida net choice cases. And like everybody, uh, she said, oh, of course, it's unconstitutional. But her reasons for saying it's unconstitutional included some language suggesting that maybe not everything would be unconstitutional. Uh, and she and Francis Fukuyama have a theory that I sort of like. Paul, I think you probably don't like, but do you want to let us know whether you think this theory is going to have some legs in the court? So I, I think it's too much of a bank shot in terms of the First Amendment to really catch on with the court. But as I understand it, the idea is that, OK, Texas and California, we understand you're worried about censorship undertaken by the big tech companies. And so we're going to come in with our rule that overrides your censorship. And their response, and I don't understand, frankly, why it's a sequitur. Yeah, there's bad stuff on the Internet, but people can screen that out. But that's not an argument in favor of, of company censorship, which was the problem that Texas and Florida were responding to. It seems to me that the, the response is orthogonal to what the legislation was about. I mean, so you can have both a, uh, indeed, it seems to me what they're arguing, which is to have greater tools, better tools for users to control what content they get, including the algorithms that predict what they want to see. That is all the more reason for taking away company control over the information flow, which is what Florida and Texas are trying to do. So to me, it's orthogonal with the issues in the case. Yeah. If I can justify it, this way, I would say what they're saying is you're worried about maintaining a vibrant and diverse set of voices in a context where three or four companies actually get to decide what we can say by by pleading First Amendment right to suppress everybody else's speech. And when Texas and Florida say that that's improper, 
they are going too far because there's a better way to ensure diverse speech, which is to have multiple content moderators on the same platform. And those multiple content moderators will ensure diversity. So rather than just telling Silicon Valley they can't moderate, you should tell them that they have to have multiple moderators. I guess that's the way I would interpret what they're saying. But I don't see why the multiple moderator argument isn't fully consistent with everybody gets on and then the multiple moderators do the screening. And I also will note, just in passing, how is this argument consistent with the Thaler-Sunstein argument that multiple moderators equals uh, smokestacking, which undermines a vibrant exchange and creates echo chambers instead? So, uh, yeah. So I find it very puzzling. So I it, it, say it, rude it, things, but I, I don't want to say rude things about the persons involved. Daphne Keller's uh, a good player. Uh, okay. I agree with you that at the end of the day, this feels like an excuse to submit a law review article more than a serious act of advocacy. So back uh, in the ATS cases 20 years ago, one of the more interesting amici briefs was by Joe Stiglitz. Uh-huh. You know, already ennobled with his Nobel Prize. And, you know, it's great to hear from Joe Stiglitz, although I don't think he really had a lot to say about alien tort issues. And here we have another, I'll say, notorious rather than distinguished academic who's trying to share his wisdom with the court. And I just don't think anyone, any of the nine is really interested in this stuff. So I right. Okay. All right. Well, we're going we're gonna to close on that note because we are way over time. Uh, Justin, Paul, Jeffrey, thank you for joining us. For our long-suffering listeners who now have plenty of new CyberLaw content to listen to, thanks for tuning back in. Send us your comments and feedback to cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com, and we will get back to shorter podcast episodes as of next week. Leave us a review. Uh, we'd love to get it. This has been Episode 46 of the CyberLaw Podcast. mentors once told me the only good time to kick people is when they're down. Ah, 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 yeah.